Well, why don't you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. We are um, in the third, a three-part series. This is the final, uh, final one, uh, looking at this great call in Hebrews chapter 12 to run this endurance race. And uh, you may have seen in the last, if you were here for the last couple of weeks, we, what I set out for you is that the Hebrew Christians, this, we, this letter is written to a group of Christians who find themselves in an urban context um, and, and they're under persecution. They've experienced um, rejection from their families. They've been, um, perhaps some of them are even imprisoned. This is a moment of great pain for them. And in the midst of that pain, some of them are considering uh, pulling back of leaving Christ, of rejecting him. And into, this, into that great context of pain, the great clarion call comes to endure, to keep running the race. I want to read to you the first couple of verses of chapter 12, and then we're going to read from verse 18 to 29. The first week we saw the great encouragement not to despise the pain that we're going through, but actually to see it as part of God's discipline. God is shaping us through the painful experiences that we have in life. Last week, we saw the great call not to uh, run towards sin when we experience pain, but to run away from sin and to pursue holiness as part of running this race. And today we are, we are hearing a great reminder that we have come to Zion. We have come to the great uh, heavenly city and that is where we belong that is our citizenship he's saying saying to these hebrew christians you're you you haven't come to sinai you haven't come to the kind of the ways of the old covenant the the ways of your forefathers no you've come to zion and that should shape how you run this race let me read to you uh, chapter 12 verse 1 to 2 and then verse 18 to 29 Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And then from verse 18, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, that's a storm, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. That was Sinai. But then he says, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. 
Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. I want you to picture the scene that is right at the centre of this passage. It's a moment of profound joy. That word festal gathering is actually found outside the New Testament to describe the great celebration at the heart of the Olympic ceremony in the Greek uh, practice of the day. It's a feast. It's a great moment of celebration. And he describes innumerable angels. You can imagine, think of Glastonbury, but kind of on a much greater scale. Thousands of angels, thousands upon thousands of angels that you simply can't count. There are so many arrayed before the great throne of God. The Lord himself is present at this moment. This is not a kind of moment of random hedonism. This is a moment of profound celebratory worship. The angels are there and in the middle are the people of God. And it describes how they are enrolled. They know they belong there. They know they have a citizenship in heaven. And next to the Father is Christ, the Lamb of God, seated at the right hand of the Father. And not not just because of Christ, they can see his blood has welcomed them there. This is a moment of of real profound glory and celebration. And in fact, one writer described this as kind of like the, the high point of the book of Hebrews, this great scene of the heavenly city, the city of the living God. Perhaps they're singing, uh, as we hear in Revelation chapter 5, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. So we see this great scene, but the great challenge, the great kind of shock almost, the thing that you always should be surprised about, is that he describes this not as something to come, but he describes this as a present citizenship. Notice how he says, uh, verse 22, But you have come to Mount Zion saying, you've come there now. This is where you belong. Verse 28, he says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You've already received this kingdom. What's fascinating is he's really describing a kind of present citizenship. This is where you belong. In fact, we might say as Christians, you, you live in the city of man, but you, but you know ultimately your citizenship, where you belong is the city of God, this great heavenly city that the writer of Hebrews is, is drawing a picture for us In fact, this is why Peter can say um, in the book One Peter, some of us who were with us when we looked at that series, we describe that series as exiles because it says you are exiles in this present land because you know that you have a citizenship somewhere else in this great holy city, this heavenly Jerusalem. And the great question that looms over this passage that the the writer of Hebrews is asking this this kind of uh, fragile community of Jewish Christians is, have you forgotten your great citizenship? Have you forgotten where you are? He said, you, you, we know that these guys are considering going back to their old ways of they can't take the kind of um, rejection they've experienced from their peers. And they're thinking about going back to Judaism, going back to the, the kind of old covenant that was given at the moment of Sinai. He's saying, don't you realize how much greater this Zion is, this place that, I, that, that the Lord has brought you to? Why would you go back to Sinai? And I think just as they have the great danger of forgetting 
this holy city, this heavenly city, I think we too have the great danger of forgetting it. Why? Because, well, it feels fantastical, doesn't it? It feels far removed from our present existence. Think about the, the, the guys who would have been receiving this letter, perhaps a small community huddled in some room somewhere in Rome or another urban centre. They're probably quite poor. Their life feels quite fragile. And they're, they're obviously experiencing this kind of rejection. It feels nothing like this great, glorious, festal gathering, this great feast, this great moment of celebratory worship. This feels so far removed from their present circumstances. And so too, it may feel removed from the realities that we experience in our lives. And that's the great danger that we forget our citizenship, that we forget where we really belong, that we live in this world, live in the city of man, not as exiles, but as residents, as basically forgetting where we really belong. We get tossed and turned by the same events as everybody else. Our ethics look the same. Our ability to endure suffering and pain is just like everybody else's. And so there's a danger that then we give up. We give up persevering in this endurance race um, like he's calling us to. So there's, there's you, what he's saying is, have you forgotten? But really, you, I want you to see the positive of this vision. I want to suggest to you that when you understand that this is where you belong, when you, understand, when you put yourself in this great, glorious worship gathering, when you remember your citizenship, it will change the posture of how you are running the great endurance race of the Christian life. You see, when we've talked about endurance, there's a great danger that some of you hear endurance and you think um, kind of hanging on in some kind of like, oh, I just can't do this, but I'm just going to kind of hang on and hope that this ends. You know, I go do uh, Andrew Howe been taking me out doing some exercise recently um, and uh, kind of offered me some free personal training, so to speak. And, uh, and the first time he took me out, honestly, the whole way through, I was just like, please just hang on till this ends. You know, I'm not I, I just I, this is so painful. I'm just going to hang on. And there's a little bit. I think that some of us think about enduring in the Christian life a little bit like that, just kind of let's just hang on let's grin and bear it let's just kind of get through this and then one day we'll be at the heavenly city and and to which I think the the, it's the wrong approach actually when we remember our present citizenship in this heavenly city it will change our posture it means we will run this great endurance race with confidence with joy with gratitude it should change the way we run it should make us unshakable That's why I've entitled this morning's message, Unshakable Citizens. We've received a a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so we too, when we understand that great reality, will become unshakable, kind of indomitable. Like almost no pain or suffering or anything that the world throws us will stop us from running this great endurance race. And of course, I imagine many of you don't feel like that. Maybe you feel weary. Maybe you feel tired. Maybe you're grumbling. Maybe you're just feeling a little bit glum. And I think the danger is that you've forgotten this great heavenly reality, which I think is the secret to endurance. So I want to unpack for you, what does this uh, look like? What does it mean to run this great endurance race with the confidence of your citizenship in this heavenly city? I want to break it down in three ways. So the first way is unshakable joy. Christians can endure, endure through all circumstances because they found a transcendent joy, a joy which transcends their circumstances. See this great joyful scene. It's a, it's a wonderful celebration. One commentator, one writer even described this as a kind of a wild party. That's the kind of language that festival gatherings should speak of. It's a, it's a great moment of joy, a glorious celebration. What's, what's, what, where, I think in many ways the picture just exudes joy for us. Let me uh, give you a couple of ways it does that. One is the assurance. These saints at the center of this festival gathering, 
they know that it describes them as enrolled. They know their status. They know they are firstborn sons. It says to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. So they know their names are written in the book of life. They know they have every right to be there because of the blood of the lamb that speaks a better word over them. See, that it's, it, it contrasts it with the blood of Abel, um, which the blood of Abel cried out for justice after Cain killed Abel. No, this blood doesn't cry out for justice. No, because the blood of the lamb says these people have every right to be here because justice has been done on the cross. You have assurance to be there in the presence of God. But it's, it's not just assurance, it's also access Think about the contrast with Sinai that it's just given them. In Sinai, the people of God are are away from the mountain. They're they're warned they cannot go to the mountain. Such is the great uh, terror of the presence of God. Such is the holiness of God that if they were to cross onto the mountain, they would die. They stand aback from, from Sinai. They can't have access to the presence of God. And yet the blood of the Lamb has welcomed them into Zion, into the very presence of the living God. It's this great, I love this verse in in Revelation 21, which describes this when it says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. We are looking on to the great reality that one day God will be present with his people like he was present with Adam and Eve walking in the garden. Think of this picture of intimacy that that we are experiencing, that we, we should experience now in some sense, and that we're looking on in this picture. And the people are, are not kind of looking at themselves, not kind of uh, grappling with all their different insecurities and insufficiencies. No, they are caught up in worship, in celebratory awe. And, but I, this, this joyful scene is not just a scene. It's meant to bleed into every part of our lives. We're meant to be joyful people. And we actually see it's, the, it's this reality that should be the source of our greatest joy. In Luke uh, chapter 10, uh, the disciples are, are coming back from um, being sent out, being commissioned uh, to go. And, they, and, they're, and they're rejoicing because God has used them wonderfully. They're really delighted about this. Uh, but then Jesus kind of brings them back down to earth and he says this. Uh, or rather, this is what they say to him. Um, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The great danger is that these disciples would suddenly find their joy in, what, in how God has used them or perhaps in all sorts of different successes in our lives. He's saying, no, the greatest source of joy in your life is that your names are written in the book of life. Or in Hebrews chapter 10, we see this, this joy bubbling through in the most unlikely of circumstances. And he says, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. He describes how they accept their property being plundered with joy. I don't know if, you ever, if you've ever been robbed. I had some dear friends who've, who've experienced that. And it's a horrible experience to have your possessions stolen. The, the sense of injustice, the sense of being violated, of someone coming into your home and taking your stuff. And yet there's a paradoxical um, statement here. It says actually in the midst of having their property plundered, they experience 
joy. It doesn't make sense. And the only answer is that they have found a joy that, is, that transcends their circumstances, that comes from somewhere else. This is not some kind of perma-smile or kind of some saccharine sweet, uh, just kind of keep smiling even when you're, diffi- when you're finding these difficult. No, the Bible talks about lament, talks about weeping. Jesus wept when uh, Lazarus' uh, death, when, when he, saw, Mary, or he saw, saw the sisters weeping at their brother's death. No, this is a source of joy that stands outside our events, a joy and contentment that, ke- that sustains us even in the darkest times. And I think the great irony of this is that Christians are often portrayed as, as joyless, as actually kind of killjoys. Think about kind of the way Christians are portrayed in media, like austere nuns. My mum went to a convent school and she talks about the nuns who were just kind of the very opposite of joy, if anything, much stern and harsh and aggressive. And, or, or, you know, you see examples of kind of monks who practice asceticism where they're kind of decrying any kind of worldly pleasures and they're beating themselves. Um, or you just kind of see sometimes the, the way Christian worship is portrayed in, 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 on TV as a kind of more like a funeral dirge than a, a kind of joyful moment of celebration. The great tragedy is I think the very defining hallmark of Christians is that they have found a joy that speaks outside of their circumstances because they belong in another city. The, this joy that you experience today was the great proof in a sense that you have a citizenship in another country that you come that you come from another place where this where we see great abundant joy and right from the from the father this is what we're missing here is the center of the universe god himself the trinity is a community of love father the father loves the son as the son loves the father the spirit that they are in a community of love that have loved each loved them loved the father has loved the son for all eternity and that in that love, there's a joyful giving of oneself and receiving that love. And that, that centre of joy, that centre of love, then flows out. We are included into that. We are brought into that community of loving joy. Actually, this is essential to our witness. I think there's a great danger uh, that, 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 in fact, it's a really rubbish witness when Christians don't display this kind of joy, when, when you see bitter or, or grumbling or glum Christians. I think it's a really terrible advert for the gospel. Actually, what we're saying is that really when we experience this kind of rugged joy, this joy that cannot be taken away from us from our circumstances, actually it proves that we believe in a world that is not just based in our present circumstances. The danger is that we're caught up by our present circumstances. We're anxious about our exams, our deadlines, our out- the outcomes that we're driving towards in our jobs. And we lose sight of this spiritual city. We're meant to live in the city of man, but no, with one eye, with one, with one kind of thought that we belong in the city of God. The great enemy here, I think, is busyness, the kind of being caught up in the day-to-day events of life to such an extent that you lose sight of the great spiritual reality that isn't just your future, but in some sense is your present. That's why it says in Ephesians, you are seated with Christ in heavenly realms. It's not just a future reality, this is a present reality. The great danger is we fail to connect this picture, this festal gathering with our, with our lives. We forget it, just like the Hebrew Christians have forgotten it and are, and are going back to Sinai. We might be tempted to go back to our old lives if we forget our citizenship of this heavenly city. And actually, I think this citizenship should shape us. It should not just manifest itself in joy, but also in just all sorts of different ways. I think about the way the assurance of this picture, the way that the, the disciple, the the, the the saints in this picture know that they belong there, how that should just shape how we interact with other people. That you, because you know that you belong in the kingdom of heaven, it means that you're not forever searching for belonging in this world. 
How often we meet people who are, who are looking for a place to belong, who are trying to figure out that they have a place and have a, have a people. I know for me this was my experience growing, growing up. I come from a very mixed ethnic background. My mum's half Italian, half Swiss. My dad is Jewish, Iraqi, but was born in India. And, and growing up, I had no sense of kind of who am I? In a sense, me and my brother were quite confused about us. We're British, but, you know, we get those questions like, but where are you really from? Or, uh, you know, we're kind of Jewish, but we're not Jewish because our mum's mum's not Jewish. And so we had all these kind of questions kind of confused. But when I became a Christian at the age of 20, that was when I, when I said, finally, I know who I am. I know that I belong. I know that I'm enrolled, that my name is written in the book of life. So it's, it's an antidote to that great almost existential searching for a place of belonging that actually, I think, undergirds much of the activity in our world. It's the antidote to that, that great desire, that, that almost being controlled by the opinions of others, of wanting to be accepted by other people and needing to say a certain thing or worrying about whether someone accepts you because you want to belong. So it's actually, no, I don't need to conform myself to other people's opinions to please them because I belong in the kingdom of God. And my name is enrolled. My name is written in the book of life. It's the great antidote to that existential searching that we see in our city where, where so many people are approaching their work life through a lens of how can I validate my existence? How can I justify my, the reason for my existence? How can I prove that I am worth something, that my life is valuable? How many people enter into work with that mindset and that's behind so much of our overworking, uh, that's behind so much of the kind of ceaseless ambition and driving people from job to job and ultimately... The Christian says, no, actually, I know that I belong. I know that I'm I'm valuable so much that Christ is willing to die for me. Actually, I don't need to operate in this kind of ceaseless activity because I know that I have a place in the kingdom. Of course, I think you'll see this also in the way you relate to God. Do you relate to God like, like Zion or do you relate to God like Sinai? He's saying, actually... In Zion, the people of God know that they belong. It means even when they sin, even when they mess up, they are willing to come into the presence of God, willing to experience his grace. The great problem with with relating to God through Sinai, through the kind of the obedience covenant of the old law, is that there's a sense to which some of you, when you sin, you just just think, I'm just going to stay in a pile of of kind of self-pity and guilt. Actually, when you're in Zion, you know that the blood of Christ speaks a better word. And so you feel very comfortable, very quick to run into the presence of God, even knowing that, you're, that, you, that you've sinned. I think the real test of whether you know that you're a citizen of heaven is gratitude in all circumstances. The, see, the, te- the test for unshakable joy is not positive uh, circumstances, not getting a new job or you know, being in a, getting into a relationship or all sorts of things that make us happy. You know, the real test of unshakable joy is how will you react to suffering? And of course, I, I, this, I want to remind you of this great verse that, that Paul, um, that we've mentioned a couple of times over the last nine months, but I think it really resonates. It's Paul talks about the great secret to contentment. And he describes it like this. I n- Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The great test of whether you've really understood your citizenship in heaven is whether or not you can agree with Paul that when you go through difficult circumstances, you have still found a great contentment in Christ that sustains you. This is the great test of the moment that we're in, brothers and sisters. Will you fight for contentment in Christ, even as you experience all sorts of circumstances that are not ideal? Or will you grumble? (laughs) Will you get bitter? Will you sit in glumness? 
see, I think the answer is if you've understood you're a heavenly citizen, that should lift us, brothers and sisters. That should ex- we should experience a new joy that transcends our circumstances. So don't forget where you've come from. Don't really, sorry, don't forget where you've come to. Walk with thanksgiving, with, with joy, because you remember your citizenship. That's the first point, unshakable joy. Second of all, unshakable kingdom. The people of God are able to persevere in an unshakable way, even through the most difficult times, because the kingdom they have come to is unshakable. That means they're fearless in the face of pain and trials, and they don't place their security in fragile things that are easily shaken and destroyed. See, in verse 28, uh, the end of, near the end of the passage we're looking at, He says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And what he's describing is this great moment of shaking. It says, just in Sinai, as the the voice of God shook the mountain, so to speak, actually there is a a shaking that is coming, and the the prophet Haggai speaks about this. A shaking not just of of the earth, but of the heavens. He's speaking of judgment and saying that one day the world will be shaken And the kingdom of God will endure. Everything else will be destroyed, but the kingdom of God will stand. It's a bit like, imagine for a moment an earthquake in a city somewhere where all the buildings are fallen by that earthquake, except one. One great shining tower is standing whilst all the other buildings collapse. And he's saying, that is like the kingdom of God, that every other building will be be destroyed one day. Every temple or every uh, tower to man's achievement will be shaken and destroyed. But one day we will see that only the city of God, only this great heavenly city is standing whilst everything else is destroyed. And in one sense, he's he's reminding them, saying, don't you see this great city? Don't you see how, how the story ends? Why would you consider walking away from Christ when you know the outcome, the end of the story? So he's a reminder not to persevere, not to walk away from Christ. But also, I think the great reality that we have found an unshakable kingdom should should show itself, I think, in many ways in our lives. It means that we are unshakable in the face of tragedy and loss. It means that we can weather any kind of tragedy because we're saying the thing that great, provides greatest comfort to me, even if every other part of my life is shaken and destroyed, the kingdom of God that I have received stands unshakable. I think we see this on a number of different levels. One is on a personal level. I think about, you can think of examples of Christians who've gone through great tragedy and suffering, have lost almost everything that they count valuable, but because they still have Christ, that may, they may experience great suffering, that may be great difficulty for them, but they're able to say through that great tragedy that, that they have found peace, that they, are, they have found comfort because of this, tr- this great reality. I can think of no better than uh, example than a man, um, Horatio Spafford, who was a businessman who, who lost one son to pneumonia, then uh, a fire destroyed his business in Chicago. And so he had uh, four daughters and a wife, and he said, OK, we'll go on a, a kind of a holiday, so to speak, to, to France from, from America uh, to kind of... Um, get away from this, this difficult situation. And he sent his wife and his four daughters on ahead of him. He needed to clo- do, finish things up in Chicago and, um, or wherever it was in America. And, he, um, and, then, and then during their travel, uh, during the boat, uh, the boat ride, with, which was carrying his wife and his uh, four daughters, uh, there was a collision and the, and the daughters died. And his wife sent a telegram back to him saying, saved alone. And then it was on, then, on, a, a, on the boat trip uh, when he was then travelling across the Atlantic, um, that as the, just after his boat crossed the 
the location of where his four daughters had died that he penned the great hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Even in the midst of great tragedy, he was able to write these words. He said, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, lest this blessed assurance control that Christ, yes he has, has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. And then the last uh, verse, and Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend, even so it is well with my soul. In the hardest circumstances, at the loss of his daughters, loss of his son, the collapse of his business, he was able to sing, able to write, it is well with my soul. That is the great truth that he, faith, uh, that he, he worshipped an unshakable kingdom. Think about, uh, you can see this at a geopolitical level even. Uh, the great um, Christian writer, Augustine, the African theologian, uh, was the bishop of a city uh, called Hippo, which is in modern-day um, Algeria, writing in uh, 410 uh, AD. And, uh, and he's writing at the, at the time when barbarians are attacking and destroying Rome. And, uh, and, in it, and, and he has in his congregation some who will have been kind of... Uh, fleeing that in some sense so they're they're in exiles from rome and they're saying how could this happen how could god allow this to happen and of course rome at that point represents the kind of high point of civilization so they're saying how can west how can we watch civilization be destroyed what's his response in that moment he says god does not raise up citadels of stone and marble for us outside of this world he raises up citadels of the holy spirit for us citadels of love which could never collapse which will forever stand in glory when this world has been reduced to ashes rome has collapsed and your hearts are outraged by this but rome was built by men like yourself since when did you believe that men had the power to build things that are eternal your soul filled with the light of the Holy Spirit will not perish. If he could say that in that moment where the the civilization was crumbling, how much more should we not be rocked by great geopolitical events, by elections and by all sorts of things? Not saying it doesn't matter, not saying we shouldn't have lack compassion for when people are suffering, but we have a hope that transcends history, that says nations will rise and fall, pandemics will come and go, But the Christian can remain unshaken and fearless in the face of turmoil because the kingdom they have received is unshakable. The kingdom stands through wars, through earthquakes and through destruction. Nothing can separate you from his love. And what's more, the kingdom continues to advance even through this great turmoil. We can see his kingdom expanding. In a sense, the marching orders for the church remain the same. Continue to worship God and continue to be about his business and making disciples. Continuing to surrender your lives in, in, as an act of worship in every part of your life. The standing orders remain. The kingdom continues even in the midst of great turmoil in the world. The great danger is are you placing your hope in things that can be shaken? The converse of this is how easy it is to become attached to, if you follow the analogy, buildings that can collapse at any moment. How we can attach our hearts to our careers, how we can say, this job is subtly, subconsciously, this job is the way that I will guarantee my future happiness. It will be the way I'm provided, provide for everything, the way I, I know I'll be happy. But of course, reality is that any, any, any earthly thing can be taken from you in a moment. 
So not only can it be ripped from your hands, but also you live with that kind of vulnerability, with that knowing that the things you've placed your hope in are fragile, that they can go at any moment. No, the Christian says, I will not put my trust in these things. I'll enjoy them while I have them. I'll, set, I'll share what the good things that God has provided for uh, to me with others. But I will not put my hope in these things because they are fragile and the kingdom I've received is unshakable. So don't give up. Know that you've found an unshakable kingdom. Know how the story ends. But finally, I want to remind you that you have, received, you have encountered the voice that shakes everything. Christians are unshakable in their obedience because they have encountered the voice that shakes everything. As much as we see this as a picture of great assurance, great welcome, great access to the Father, this is no uh, tame picture of the living God. We are reminded throughout this passage of the great authority of the voice of God. This is a voice that thunders and terrifies Behind this kingdom stands the great and awesome voice of God. This is obviously good news for those in Christ, but it's a terrifying reality for those who are outside of Christ. This is not a voice to be trifled with. This is not a voice that we flirted with. The people of Israel couldn't even listen to this voice. That's why they said we have to have a mediator. We have to have Moses go and hear the voice of God. It's a reminder again that the voice that shook Sinai will one day shake the whole earth. But one day there will be a judgment where, where all of man's achievements outside of Christ will be shown to be worthless. It talks about how we see at the moment of Sinai, at the beginning of the passage, how God is, is like, appears on, the, on Sinai as a fire. And then right at the end of the passage, he describes him as a consuming fire. That the fire of God will consume, consume all that is opposed to God will be burned up. We see the terror Even Moses is terrified at the beginning of this scene. Think about how Christ experienced the terror of judgment on Gethsemane that we looked at a few weeks ago. How Actually, it's a terrifying thing to face judgment and and not to have the blood of Christ covering you. This is no tame vision of the Lord. This is a vision that actually should terrify you if you're outside of Christ, knowing that God is opposed to you and you stand under his judgment. And for those of us in Christ, it's actually a picture that reminds us of of really our response to Christ being one of reverence and awe. And therefore the calling to run in obedience and perseverance. Not ignoring this voice, not kind of flirting with this voice, not kind of saying, oh yeah, maybe I'll listen to that voice eventually. No, it's saying, I will submit myself to the voice because this is the voice that shakes nations. This is the voice that will bring about a shaking of the world one day. In verse 25, is a seed that you do not refuse him. If Israel didn't escape the warning that was given to them, they died if they went into the mountain, onto the mountain, how much more will we not escape if we refuse this voice? So it's a call to persevere, a call not to walk away from Christ, but to keep running with him. But it's, for those of us who are running, it's a call to obey, a call to walk forward in reverent obedience. And he says, uh, at the end he says, um, let us offer to God acceptable worship. Well, in a sense, every part of our lives can be offered to God as acceptable worship. As we obey him, as we seek to walk in holiness, as we seek to love our neighbours, as we seek to worship God with our work, the whole lives is one great response of acceptable worship, of obedience to the living God as a sign that we recognise his holy authority. We recognise that we've encountered the voice that shakes nations. So I want to conclude that I want to take these, these three strands together and say, brothers and sisters, now is the time to be unshakable. 
Now is the time to, to walk forward with great joy and gratitude, not to grumble, not to allow bitterness to have the last word, but to remember that you are a citizen of this holy city, that you belong in the city of the living God, and that will make you unshakable, that you have the assurance that you're enrolled, in the, that your name is written in the book of life, that you have access to the Father. Now you can enjoy that access. You can enjoy his presence. You can meditate on him every day. You have the assurance of sonship. You need not fear tragedy and suffering because even if the worst happens and the, the different buildings of your life come down, you have received an unshakable kingdom. Even as we experience something of a shaking now, the birth pangs, we know that the kingdom we've received is unshakable. And remember that a great judgment is coming, a great shaking is coming. Now is not the time to give up in pursuing Christ. Now is not the time to flirt with other things, to walk away or to run to the left or the right. Now is the time to walk forward in reverent obedience. And we have a chance now just to express our intention to do that, to remember the living God by worshipping him together. The guys are going to come up. I'm going to pray for us and we're going to respond to this. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Lord, we want to thank you that you have brought us to this great feast, this great celebration that even now we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. And we want to just worship you together. We want to reenact this moment together now, even though in all our different rooms, different places we find ourselves, we recognize that we have been formed into the holy people of God that we've been enrolled into this great army of brothers and sisters who are unshakable in the face of suffering, in the face of loss, in the face of uh, pain and suffering, because we know that we've received an unshakable kingdom. And Lord, we bow before you, Lord. We recognize that yours is the voice that will shake nations, that yours is the voice that does shake nations. And we want to walk forward in obedience to you, Lord. We want to be done with sin. We want to be done with flirting with other things. We want instead, Lord, to walk in obedience to you. So, Lord, we worship you. We thank you for that great privilege, the great joy that we've come to this heavenly city. We praise you now, Lord. Thank you for your blood. We worship you, Lord. Amen.